0: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VDW Group, no purchase necessary. where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18+. plus. Welcome, listeners, to Streams of Resistance, a special series by The Wayward Wanderer, where we find out more about the far right and what people are doing about it from the folks who are in the thick of it. In part three, we will be talking about Christian nationalism and the ex-evangelicals who have left it behind. All righty, everyone. Welcome back to Streams of Resistance. Joining me now is uh, podcaster Blake Chastain of the Post-Exvangelical. Uh, welcome, Blake. It's good to have you on.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, my my uh, podcast is uh, evangelical, and then my uh, I have a newsletter called the Post Evangelical Post. I like to say that all my things begin as puns. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Um, so could you introduce yourself a little, like where you're coming from, what your background is, and all that?
0: Sure. Yeah, uh, I was um, born and raised in the midwestern area in Indiana before moving to. Il- the Chicago suburbs um, in, uh, in the high school years. Um, and throughout all of that, I um, was raised in different types of uh, evangelicalism. There, um, we attended a United Methodist Church growing up, um, but the way I like to describe the UM experience is that it sort of takes on a local flavor. So small town Indiana, and a relatively homogenous town is going to take on those characteristics, whereas if you went to a UM church in a place like downtown Chicago, then you might have uh, a very different type of experience and different people attending. Um, uh, I was sort of swept up, uh, as many people were in the '90s youth group culture. Um, if any of your listeners have experience in evangelical Christianity and are of a certain age, that probably resonates. Um, so at the ripe old age of 17, I uh, felt the call to the ministry, chose my 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 you know my college uh, based on that, uh, went to a college called Indiana Wesleyan, um, and that's where I sort of had my first faith crisis within the first uh, week of school. We had, uh, well, it was when 9-11 happened, and that changed the entire tenor. Of the entire culture in the United States, but um, but in a place like that, um, there was a lot of cognitive disson- dissonance between you know being somewhere where you're supposed to be learning about you know Jesus of Nazareth, this Prince of Peace type figure, but then culturally and politically, uh, there's a lot of people uh, sort of chomping at the bit to support uh, the that uh, the war effort and what would lead to the war in Iraq. Um, and I was uh, just in this weird sort of position where I was in history classes where there's a bit more of that conservative hawkish nature. Um, and then uh, in my biblical classes, you know, I was learning about how the Bible was constructed and all these other things. Um, and because of that intense, taking it so seriously um process i felt like i couldn't be qualified to be some sort of priest or pastor or anything so i didn't i elected to not go to seminary or anything like that but um kept studying that uh, aspects of religion um my i eventually worked full-time and got my master's part-time and studied evangelical politics as it relates to environmentalism um and tried you know went through periods of heavy involvement and totally not uh going to church uh culminating in like 2014 sort of deciding to part ways with the fundamentalist storefront church that we were attending in in chicago um and then a couple of years later, that's when I decided to start a podcast called Exvangelical that um, that really tried to explore why people were leaving that particular uh, faith practice and community. Um, and yeah, I just thought a, a podcast would be best suited to that sort of work um, because it can be open-ended. You can hear people's stories in their own voices um, and then as the body of work, you know, culminates over time, then you can sort of see those patterns come into play. Um, I guess to sort of round that out, like since then, um, evangelical, I had an early part in like the, the hashtag initially catching on on Twitter. Um, and then the hashtag jump social networks from Instagram to to TikTok now, on TikTok it has over 1.2 billion views, um, and uh, so a lot of that energy from like 2016 to today uh, has really been building on a lot of these other um, prior uh, prior movements that tried to reform evangelicalism from within, um, but generally evangelicalism doesn't really want to be reformed. And now because of things like social media, you can make a lot of these these connections that used to be more like whisper networks. You know, like if you were in the 80s or 90s or 2000s or anything like that, and you left a church, then you'd probably go meet at a bar or something, you know? And like, and talk to your fellow apostates or, you know, people, backslidden people or whatever people call you. Um, but now you, there's this whole um, sort of, informational counterpublic is what some like sociologist, excuse me, like sociologists um, may use that term to describe what has sort of happened since then, Um, which is really, really fascinating to be both like both a participant in it and an observer of it and like see uh, something like that um, come up. So, so yeah, that's my, that's my, uh, (laughs) Uh, somewhat brief <laughs> history.
1: Um could you explain in your own words what Christian nationalism is and how useful you think this term is?
0: Yeah, Christian nationalism, um there there had over the last especially since January sixth, twenty the, J- the j6 insurrection it's definitely become a way in which we talk about um a type of very toxic civil religion um, that really does crop up uh very much so in white evangelical spaces but it is the one of the things that is beneficial to the term is that it does uh it's not strictly denominational um, so you can find Christian nationalist type tendencies within uh, traditional Catholic backgrounds or other types of uh, Christian denominations. Even you may find them in progressive backgrounds or progressive denominations because some large denominations have rural uh, rural places where those things may be more common or even, you know, depending upon how those types of those types of uh, theologies enter uh, enter a space or enter someone's sphere of influence through social media, through radio, through through print media, whatever it might be. Generally, it's a type of media. Um, Christian nationalism is um, what other folks have identified as oftentimes it's really this idea of christian supremacy within a nation so and there is usually also a strong racial component as well so a lot of people expand on the term and call it in particular white christian nationalism because it privileges whiteness heteronormativity christian christianity generally protestant christianity though Protestants may align themselves when it's beneficial in the political sphere with Catholics or others, even if secretly or you know in their heart of hearts, so to speak. Uh, they think that uh, those are not the you know the best type of Christian to be. but it is a type of um, type of worldview that really does privilege, christian uh quote unquote christian conservative outlooks and policies in the public sphere and wants those to be the rubric by which all americans or any other country are measured against and that they must be subject to that rule and in general that is built on something such like, uh, uh, you know, they believe that they that they should have a direct role in the governance of whatever country they are at. Here in in the context of America, of the United States of America, that means that is primarily expressed through conservative GOP candidates and things like that, and sitting Congress people and others. There's a lot uh, a lot of other things that uh, sort of preface uh, th- this emergence of the term Christian nationalism. It is valuable. Uh, I do there are other um, movements that predate that term being popularized in the last few years in uh, mass media, uh, in particular, one that comes to mind that's very important is Christian reconstruction. Uh, Because a lot of, uh, a lot of reconstructionist thought is what we are really talking about when we talk about the way in which um, these Christian organizations and individuals of great influence are trying to assert themselves uh, in a dominant fashion. Um, And Julie Ingersoll is the leading scholar on this, and even, she will say, you know, a lot of times people may be espousing Christian Reconstructionist type thoughts uh, and beliefs, even if they can't articulate that, because Christian Reconstructionists decades ago um, were some of the early proponents of the Christian homeschool movement. And then these types of things are introduced early on into, you know, homeschool education. It's it's certainly a complex thing, and they and especially Christian Reconstructionists, they're They're working on a 200-year timescale or something, Uh, and that's not an exaggeration. That's within Ingersoll's work, and it's actually something we see having played out in how diligently they chipped away at Roe until it fell.
1: One consistent pattern that's shown up so far in reporting around this has been prominent Christian conservatives, people like Rod Dreher, for example, mm-hmm. openly embracing the policies of the Polish Law and Justice Party, which recently banned abortion at the uh, national level, and Viktor Orban's Hungary, which many political scientists have labeled as an illiberal democracy on its way to being a fully authoritarian regime. Um, how what does this say about where the American Christian right, the evangelical movement, is going? That you've got these figures openly flirting with these kind of governments?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a lot of that is where you will find a lot of a lot of connection, uh, and 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 what I've been able to read and and uh, follow is probably the the best source that really articulates this is Sarah Posner's book Unholy, um, which really delves into the intellectual and political connections between what was the Trump administration uh, as well as Viktor Orban's various periods of power in Hungary, uh, and the way in which a lot of these far-right intellectuals political lobbyists, political activists, uh, even these popular characters um, really do network together. Um, and then in addition to folks like Rod Dreher, you have also seen in the last decade or so folks like Franklin Graham aligning and praising people like Vladimir Putin as uh, really the, the scion of the protector of christian family um and things like that and it is absolutely troubling because these are authoritarian rulers these are not people that um value pluralistic democracy um and that is certainly a troubling <laughs> troubling trend and it's not um the fact that it is far more blatant um and the fact that they have been so uh so vocal in, in the support and in their admiration of of these movements this was certainly not something you know we we talk sometimes in general about things like the Overton window i don't think that prior conservatives mainstream conservatives would have been so forthright in their, um, in their praise of these folks before, but these, these are established networks, and some of the things that used to be more uh, done either out of the limelight, they're they're more uh, confident that they will not lose their standing in the overall society, um because of being because they haven't really seen any consequences for it right um within their own movement or within society at large does that make sense i mean that that's that's sort of my my i mean do you feel similarly just to, to uh, i'm just curious what what your thoughts are
1: i i think that that feels like that's where they're going that there's a very it's sort of a dynamic that feels a lot like the run-up to like say in the 1850s in the united states when you look at the fire eater faction within the southern states that was consistently advocating for escalation and confrontation and they were not just not meeting resistance they were getting more and more support and resources Mm -hmm. um as circumstances escalated i mean bit of a jump but um
0: well no i but i i do think you know that is one of the one of the elements. Sort of pivoting back to the United States in particular, um, another another really good resource with regards to um, with, with regards to how this plays out in domestic politics is uh, Project Blitz, uh, which was unearthed by uh, researcher Frederick Clarkson, and then also mentioned in uh, Catherine Stewart's book The Power Worshippers. And the project Blitz is essentially um, is essentially a a very coordinated attempt to introduce very extreme bills into state legislatures, and the intent is is to introduce something extreme, knowing that it will fail. But then, because that has opened opened the door, essentially, rhetorically, then they can introduce a slightly tamed down version that will eventually achieve their goals. And we're, we're certainly seeing things like that. in in some of these culture war type things, like I can't believe that it's 2023 and we're talking about book banning and, and, you know, DeSantis overruling an AP African-American studies class. Like these are the types of, these are the types of things that are the result of them pushing and, Many of these sort of culture war things are, are surface level to a degree, and then people get tired of it. They they atrophy, and then eventually they can introduce something that achieves their goals, and they and they're like, people might just be, shrug and be like, fine, give it to these give it to these people, but it still impacts the marginalized, op- oppressed groups uh, who may be underrepresented. And then it just reifies the the current situation, which is only beneficial to them. And um, that that's really and th- the other thing I just talked with a with um Teddy Wilson in my own podcast. He he covers the the far right and all of these far right groups. Even if they're not directly networking, they're watching one another and they're seeing what works in their respective countries. So so the insurrectionists in the United States gave ideas to, to what happened in Brazil and in other countries recently. So it's definitely worrisome. <laughs> and I'm being very timid in that. <laughs> like, <you know>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on sort of on that particular note, do you think that on one hand we've seen... Things like the Supreme Court, basically overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, among many other things, as well as like some signaling that that might be the first step and not the last. But on the other hand, you had a lot of Republican candidates in the United States running on explicitly Christian nationalist platforms and managed to get like a two seat majority. Which you know, knowing U.S. politics that will probably go because at least five or six members of Congress resign every session because of, insert here, whatever reason, um, (laughs) and didn't take the Senate in what was supposed to be a contest they would win. So do you think that this sort of contrast of, on one hand, there's institutions that have given them what they've wanted, but on the other, there's ones that haven't, Like, do you think this is going to encourage more... Uh, extra legal violence do you think there's going to be more pushes around like established channels or like some kind of mix of the two
0: yeah i mean it's very it is very hard to to meaningfully predict the future um but some of the some of the the, the fact that um you know christian nationalists uh, the most extreme example i met Extreme might not be the be- the best word, but the most blatant example was, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene selling merch that says "Proud Christian Nationalist" on it and saying, "I'm proud to be called a Christian nationalist." Um, that is very culture warry. It's very, you know, facile and easy. Uh, it's like easy points online to to say such things, but it does legitimate it as it does it does allow it to. To have a presence in those uh, in those spaces, and the modern GOP has been very very good at exploiting institutional weaknesses. Um, so, even if there even if there are uh, people who are Republican, who for whatever reason do continue to vote that way. Um, even if they don't like the sort of extremism that is a part of the party, um, those things that we see even in the recent House House Majority, uh, I'm sorry, House Speaker elections, the only way that that was was resolved was by ceding power to people like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who now have committee appointments. And now are closer to levers of power, and Matt Gates sought a pardon for his involvement in the insurrection. Um, we like we we know these things, but but those those inst- exploiting institutional weaknesses and allowing for that type of politicking to be done for so for so long. I mean the. <laughs> within like within living millennial memory like i'm i'm an elder millennial so i'm almost 40 um and and like the politics i remember growing up were were like my early memories was you know the first iraq war with with bush senior um newt gingrich and rush limbaugh (laughs) you know it's always been it's always been dirty there's always been there's always been this element of republican politics um in my lifetime that's always been that way and at the same time up until trumpism entering the picture they you know they were they also tried to hang their hat on being the party of family values and and being being christian and that sort of thing but it's all been it's all been reduced to identity at least at that level you know when it when it comes to the policies that are that are in place and and the actual policy making that that happens in DC and in other state legislatures I don't know but that the face that they give to the country at that large level is primarily represented by that and that um, I'm curious on your thoughts, but that's that's sort of <laughs> uh, that's sort of how I read what they've what they've um, permitted in their own ranks for so long.
1: Um, yeah, I'm also you know remember the the Bush years and was like you know about Yay tall when the first Iraq War happened, or I don't know, maybe that'll be the third one depending on how historians end up numbering. All the conflicts in that region, but um, the both that there is that like I remember there's always been that sort of nastiness within that element of American conservative politics, um, Mm -hmm. at least as I've remembered it, um, and it also seems like there's, it's giving license to physical violence in some ways, of things like the Club Q shooting, um, the Mm -hmm. confrontations at drag shows that, like. I'm not sure how much of that is these people feeling like they're being legitimized by what's happening versus they feel like what's happening is not happening fast enough.
0: Right. Yeah. And I did, I, I didn't really touch on on that part of your question and, and the, the tolerance for really for that is this rhetoric does make purchase in someone who, who may be prone to violence or may, you know, may be facing some other mental health problem that, that allows them to justify a really heinous act against, against by and large uh, and op- oppressed communities, whether that's trans people, uh, people of color, uh, queer people, or the intersections of all those, uh, all those identities. Um, and, and uh, absolutely like Talia Uh, Levin's book uh, really gets into some of these extremist online spaces Um, and that is that is part of this sort of ecosystem too Um, and the fact that you know so much of our life even even though we're no longer in the sort of extreme lockdown type environment that we were we still live a very mediated life Uh, many of us or if not most of us do Um, And that's part of the same ecosystem of what's available in far right spaces online. Uh, They say really, they misgender trans people and all of this degradation of human dignity does lead you to devalue even their lives. And, and this is certainly something that we've seen in history and it's, terrible that we're seeing it again and like and it should be condemned, you know, like I don't yeah it's, it's it's one of those things that takes you know makes me stumble over my words. I don't even know what to say it's just awful.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of those things that I definitely prefer seeing staying in the history books um mm-hmm. as opposed to being acted out now um
0: right, right. yeah, absolutely.
1: Um to take things in a slightly different direction because there isn't just, you know, the whole question of what are these like the what is this movement doing, but also these aren't things that are just happening in a vacuum of they're going out and doing stuff and getting what they want. Um so to move to sort of the other side of that coin, um, how much have these developments of things like increasingly extreme social conservatism? Uh, tacit support for like different levels of violent rhetoric and action and all that how has that impacted the ex-evangelical movement
0: i think you're you're seeing i think what you're seeing is i don't know whether there's a direct direct connection or not that's a very interesting question um i do think that you are seeing seeing people in their process of um of essentially uh what's often called deconstruction so so just to speak a little bit about the ex-evangelical movement first in general this is like a very ad hoc organic movement there in that way it mirrors the evangelicalism we came from one of the some of the defenders of white evangelicalism in particular say you know, this is, there's no Pope of evangelicalism. There's also no Pope of people who've left evangelicalism. Um, But a key difference is, is that white evangelicalism has about 200 years of institution and institutional weight behind it. And with that comes finances and resources and cultural norms and so many other things whereas you know there's just a whole bunch of people with with iPhones and Androids out there talking to their screen and sharing it with the world um and talking and they're threatened by that which is a wild a wild thing so you have seen you you will see people um especially with with something like white, white evangelicalism that can be identified as being majority white um or white led a lot of folks who come from that um are processing what they're seeing and and reckoning with all the parts of of the term white christian nationalism so they may to varying degrees be uh be start to become aware of uh the role whiteness has has had in their in their life in their in their faith in their communities uh, as well as the ways in which Christian nationalism uh, has shaped their own experience and some of their prior um, some of their their prior beliefs about politics and governance and things like that, because there yeah. is a lot going on because of the the increased extremism in the popular GOP in the last several years like going back at least into the racist response you know within the tea party to their obama being president through to trumpism through to today um all of that became far more part of the the mainstream expression of conservatism and that doesn't square with <laughs> with what you know the values that we were supposedly taught and that leads folks to start to question you know well what the hell do you actually value um and you know then seeing then oftentimes seeing people whether in their families or other parts of their social circle uh, really double down into these things and that that is one of the more direct things and then you will now see people, decrying or denouncing christian nationalism as an informed ex-evangelical you know they they can say i came from this place these things happened to me i changed my mind and now i'm against this um that is that is certainly powerful within being able to speak to something um now you know there's not necessarily like a (laughs) Any super PAC <laughs> that's funding funding people's TikToks and stuff or podcasts, you know, there's not um there's not you know there's not an equivalent to the Family Research Council, uh, uh, working within DC and other state legislatures or anything. So, uh, it's still a very nascent sort of expression of people leaving this space, but they at least in their individual lives they're working uh against it and i think that they're a valuable um a valuable part of that discussion because there are some things there are some ecumenical um efforts like uh the baptist joint committee in dc has uh, christians against christian nationalism um you know and that's been Active since I believe 2019, um, but then people people who leave a faith group sort of become invisible to people that participate in other faith groups, whether they're progressive or conservative. So I see it sort of still um, primarily acting out in all these individual lives. Um, I'm not sure what'll what it might take for it to become more coalesced into uh, something that's organized, you know that that's that's always something that's harder in more progressive spaces is to, you know, agree on a platform or whatever it might be um, <laughs> because, you know, they're just more prone to a uh, proliferation of opinions uh, and and desires than than the counterparts that that might be more willing to to sort of for lack of a better term sort of fall in line and follow a leader that sort of thing and 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 toe that party line um so that's sort of where i where i see it with regard to where ex-evangelicals are have you seen anything different like in your observation i don't and i'm and i'm actually really curious have you within pagan communities or or the types of communities you're a part of, whether it's online or in person, is there, is there sort of an animated desire to respond to Christian nationalism?
1: I think what it is, is, and part of it is the process of people like coming into the pagan community is very similar to what you were describing around uh, folks coming to like an ex-evangelical position and like leaving their particular denominations. Um, like the one like the only like the one significant difference is that ecological like consciousness tends to be a particularly significant element of that in a lot of conversations I've had with pagans anyway um mm-hmm. there does seem to like there are a lot of folks who did originally come from like particularly like conservative christian denominations so there is i think a general awareness of what has basically what has like what's going on and what's in these movements. And there Mm -hmm. is also a bit of a history in the sense of like the leftovers of the satanic panic and, you know, the satanic panic itself that, you know, that wasn't something that I was around for, but like the previous generation of pagans before me had to go a lot deeper underground than they already were because people were, you know, being locked up on trumped up charges of, you know, child molestation and all kinds of other things. Um, And I do remember like growing up in the 90s that that sort of culturally sort of was a hangover well until like September 11th at the latest, I think. Um, So I think like there's there and like there's like it's not something that's well publicized and there's always usually other stuff that comes and gets involved, but there are definitely instances that come up now and then in different parts of the country of somebody being fired for being outed as a pagan practitioner um and more or less nothing happening in response to it um for a variety of different reasons so i think like there's always been something of a like a background awareness but i i wouldn't exactly say that there's an organized push that's happening yet mm-hmm. um
0: yeah yeah uh because I mean, I, I have seen, you know, folks who have left evangelicalism will explore some element of Peytonism, whether whether it's like, even if it's <laughs> to use really online terms, because this is my exposure to these things primarily is like, you might see someone that is like, doing things like witch talk, or like, something or like, something pagan related uh or uh, is incorporating um you know part of if they have an indigenous background or an indigenous spirituality of any sort um then they may be exploring those parts of spiritual practice and incorporating that so like there's i'm sure that there's overlap between specifically pagan communities and um and people who've left evangelicalism who use terms like evangelical for even if it's for like a season, you know, because because um, rather, you know, I try to be self-conscious about the fact that my role in this, uh, in this, especially with regard to my podcast, is it's for people to really sort of explore various options when they're starting that out. You know, there are other people within even within like a podcast ecosystem that have other roles or have other focuses. Um, but that but I definitely have seen have seen that where someone will venture into you know exploring something with regard to paganism or witchcraft or or other types of uh you know like an earth-based spirituality or things like that. And I mean uh is besides like all the various I can't believe, you know, besides all the various religious traumas that having a conservative re- religious upbringing is I, is it usually something like with re- with regard to you know a develop a deepening appreciation for for the earth or for like the threat of climate change or for valuing that sort of thing that that draws people from that, that you're aware of from something like evangelicalism to paganism
1: I think it's there to different degrees. Um, it's not always necessarily like, cause there's different ways people approach that as well, because some focus much more like in their immediate area of things like, you know, doing beach cleanups and stuff like that, or uh, on one end. And then on the other hand, you have like folks that, I mean, and I'm kind of more on this end, but um, folks like uh, Rune Rasmussen with the Nordic animism channel who, it like regularly like promotes um like environmental defense actions. Um and there's definitely like quite a bit of overlap that's in there. So I think there is like the ecologic the sense of climate change or even just like a connection to land that they lived on. Um mm-hmm. like cause it can it really runs the gamut there. But I think that it's yeah. That seem that's I mean, and that's not always necessarily the thing because I know there's also folks that like come to um, a pagan practice from like a Christian background initially, sort of doing the you know it's the thing that mom and dad will absolutely hate.
0: Um. And <laughs> I, I can see that too. There is a there is oftentimes at least. From you know my faith of origin, like uh, you know, if you reject it, then you sort of go through a second adolescence. <laughs> it's part of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's part of the whole figuring out one's identity when it's mm-hmm. something that's so big. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, 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 and because a lot of the, well, a lot of the rites of passage that might be part of another spirituality's practice are sort of stripped from, from something like evangelicalism. And they have been for so long that, that, you know, it might be multiple generations haven't really had that. (laughs) So, um, so it's not, you know, it's not just, you know, millennials and Gen Z leaving these things. Um, It never has been. And, uh, you know, it won't, it won't be, it's, yeah. So anyways, <laughs> uh,
1: what is the thing that you think is most important for people who aren't from a Christian conservative background or are not involved in the ex-evangelical movement to understand about um, what is happening in the Christian right and with Christian nationalism today?
0: Um, that's a really good question. Uh I'm trying to think of a great of a the best place to start. I mean, by and large um and I'm not sure whether this is specific to solely the Christian right, though because a lot of times when we uh, a lot of times when you've you know studied these things for a while then then you you want to Uh, you know delve into all the the various idiosyncrasies of terms and things like that because there's you know there were fundamentalists in the you know late 19th early 20th century then they tried to shed that term and then like in the 19 in the 1960s there was a group called the new evangelicals that tried to sort of shave off the fundamentalist uh sharp edges um and then in the '70s, with the rise of the modern religious right, um, those were the things that uh, that really codified much of conservative politics in the United States. Uh, ever since then, um, was this sort of alignment with folk between folks like Jerry Falwell and Paul Wyrick, and like all these all these figures that may or may not be known um, to the broader populace um some of the some of the things that i think are still uh not yet penetrating the broader consciousness about the christian right uh is that the things that that animated the formation of the religious right was not abortion it was the fact that the irs was going to strip bob jones university one a very um very conservative segregated discriminatory college from receiving federal funding because of their segregation practices that's what animated them to become more involved in politics and there was a very strong contingent of white evangelicals who always wanted to to uphold white supremacy oftentimes the some of the the white evangelicals that have access to microphones and megaphones at places like the New Yorker and the New York Times and elsewhere, they will emphasize the abolitionist, um, the abolitionist trends within white evangelical history. People like Jonathan Blanchard, uh, all these uh, who founded Wheaton, um, all of these things, these. At the same time, though, there have been books by by really powerful authors like Dr. Anthea Butler at the University of Pennsylvania called "White Evangelical Racism," and it shows that this that that much of white evangelicalism was instituted and practiced discriminatory things that privileged whiteness over and above uh, over and above any other type of Americanism, and. It, yes, there's there's this entire part of our hist- of white evangelical history that is not really taught or talked about in in our churches uh, and in Christian schools. And instead of that, you have people like David Barton who is who positions himself as a historian historian, but he's he's creating a myth about the foundation of of christianity in america the foundation of the government and those myths are very animating and powerful and myths can function as they they don't have to be true to be powerful like like we can know that a myth is false like i can i can draw on you know I can draw on a myth from a religion that I don't know, like Greek mythology is still has power. So it is Norse, Norse stories, like these things, you know, uh, you know, (laughs) Odin hanging on the world tree, like that's evocative. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, you, these things have formed a very significant, heart of our country um and the people that have taken some sort of time to talk about their experience of of leaving these types of spaces there's a lot to be gained from listening to those voices and you don't have to listen to me like there's there's people and there are there are also communities Um, you know uh, deconstruction type communities that are focused on the black experience um, there or on other other types of deconstruction of people who've left this particular type of religious community or religious outlook Um, and right now as it stands this is still a very nascent expression of this movement. There have always been people who have tried to reform evangelicals and to push it in a more moderate or progressive uh, way. Um, Deborah G. And Lee uh, was a journalist um, who in her youth was part of the evangelical church. She's, she's Asian American. And then she uh, later in life wrote the book uh, rescuing Jesus, which, told the stories of like of gay students and others on Christian campuses that that did these similar types of things um there's another book that's going to be coming out this year called the other evangelicals there are lots of these stories of people that have tried to but what's been demonstrated time and again especially in the last few years is these spaces don't they don't want to reform like they they want they they feel convicted um you know that this patriarchal view of christianity is is the correct one and they are not interested um and that that leads to a lot of people leaving and they feel vindicated to a degree that they stood up for what they believe um but then now we have this Thing in- introduced directly into the myth making. January sixth, uh, to Bradley Onishi, one of my one of my friends and fellow podcasters. In in the shadow of January sixth, he wrote an op ed that has unfortunately come true. That January sixth was the origin myth of a new civil religion. And that encapsulates white christian nationalism that includes white christian nationalism and we should be aware of it we should know how to recognize it and how whether whether it's relationally or really vocally um resisting it rejecting it and saying that that is not something that we want present in our politics or in or in our churches or things like that and it would it will require a lot of uh bravery on people's part um but but there are but there are people who sort of have that lived experience as well as that education and i mean like anything with religion a lot of times especially as it intersects with public life there's a problem unless you believe the same exact thing or whatever else, you're probably going to disagree. It's not always going to be a comfortable conversation. Um, but if we value our democracy, then we're, we should make it, <laughs> we should make it, um, a priority to be able to have those difficult conversations when we're able to. Um,
1: and do you have any last like thoughts or anything you want to wrap up on?
0: Um, I mean, I, I hope that this has been valuable. <laughs> um, a lot of times I don't speak about things in, in this regard, you know, I usually I'm on the other side of the mic asking someone else <laughs> to, uh, to answer, to answer these similar questions. Um, if it would be valuable to your audience, I would mention that, uh, in 2020, I, uh, recorded a limited series called powers and principalities it's all about white evangelicalism and christian nationalism and i interviewed authors you know uh Cobus de may who's a gender historian anthea butler reza aslan um jeff charlotte a number of pe- people that have various types of expertise um it's a it's a real it was it was a real treat to be able to to talk to all of them um julie Ingersoll, who i also mentioned earlier Um, So if that's valuable, and I mean, uh, I think the only other thing that I, that I also would be curious to talk about and hear from you about a little bit was, you know, do you think there's, do you think there's opportunities or places where people in more like in your space and in a space like mine would have opportunities to either interact or learn from one another uh because i'm yeah because i'm always sort of curious i think that is one of one of the things that will need to come in a sort of robust response to christian nationalism is interfaith coalitions and i i also i feel like interfaith is is almost limiting because like i think it should also extend to atheists and nuns and stuff (laughs) maybe you're of the same mind but um uh but that to me is is one 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 potential solution right is to is to try to find those points of connection
1: yeah well and i think that i mean we absolutely need that cuz if we're going to not just you know effectively confront this but also build something that could be you know described as kind of a like like a benign sort of secular pluralism or something like that um then there's going to have to be those relationships and that work done beforehand before we can get to you know having a civil society that says okay we're going to respect a diversity of spiritual and religious expression um that first you know we have to get all the different spiritual and religious expressions involved to at least agree to sort of a baseline we will be okay with each other um,
0: kind of thing, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that has to be, has to be part of, part of like planning, planning these things is, is like, I'm, I'm glad you, you emailed me sort of and, and reached out because that um, because these are the types of things that I think will, will lead to that type of thing happening.
1: Thank you again for being on Blake. Um, where can people find you
0: online? Um, the place where I most often show up these days is, uh, yes, I do have a Substack. Uh, so it's post evangelical post.com. Um, that is where I publish both my newsletter, uh, as well as the primary podcast I do Exvangelical. Um, if you do, If you're still on Elon's Twitter, I'm there occasionally at PR Chastain and then just at PR Chastain underscore on Instagram and TikTok. Um, But I'm just not, I'm not on social media. I don't live on social media like I used to. So best place to go is post -post Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you again for being on. It's been great having you. And this has been uh uh ryan smith with streams of resistance as part of the wayward wanderer uh now signing off thank you for tuning in Uh, thank you blake if you want to find out more about radical heathen practice head on over to onblackwings.com where you can find articles classes resources and more This podcast was created and produced by Ryan Smith. Thanks for listening.